Hello, this is Impact Ed, and I'm H.D. Chambers with the Ailey's Independent School District. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and I believe everyone is going to enjoy uh, this episode. Not that you haven't enjoyed the others, but uh, we hope you enjoy this one uh, as well. I'm joined today by Neil Bush, and for those that are not familiar, Neil is uh, the son of former President uh, Herbert Walker, George Herbert Walker Bush, and probably more importantly, and we'll talk about that, the, the son of his mom, <laughs> Barbara, Barbara Bush. Uh, but we're, you know, when you, in the education realm, one of the issues that we are dealing with, and it, it comes to no surprise to anyone, is is making sure our, every student in our schools can can read. And while we are going to talk about a wide variety of topics today, including uh, some that have nothing to do with literacy, maybe some, but, uh, but have to do with more with uh, Neil and his personal role, as well as the Bush family and what they are attempting to do in terms of giving back. Uh, to this community, the Houston area, as well as across the country. So, Neil, thank you for for joining us. HD, it's a great pleasure. I, I know you. I know you're busy. I know you travel across the Pacific quite often. I and, do. And uh, for you to fit time uh, in your schedule for this is a, it's greatly appreciated. My pleasure, really, real pleasure. And and I've I've just for the audiences, you know, just so the audience knows, I've yeah. I've gotten to know Neil over the last several years with our role in um, kind of a collective impact organization throughout Houston that we've talked about with right. Early Matters, which is now Good Reason Houston. And um, so we're going to talk today about a lot of things. Good. Uh, but but let's 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 first talk about the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation and and kind of your you're the chairman of that organization, as well as your dad's points of light. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about your history with the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation and how that started. Um, so, so I, I've I've drunk the Barbara Bush lemonade um, that where she believed very strongly that if you can't read at an age appropriate level, and communicate and and um, be literate at an age appropriate level, then you can't possibly realize your fullest God given potential. And so my mother, uh, using the, the the bully pulpit of, as first lady, chose that as her cause. Um, she started the Barbara Bush National Foundation, which focused on family literacy. Um, Maria and I, my wife and I, thought that it would be important during mom's lifetime to start a local Houston foundation um, called the, and we called it the Barbara Bush Houston Literacy Foundation. And rather than focus just on family literacy, uh, the first thing we did was hire an outstanding leader, Dr. Julie Baker Fink. Who, who has done a fabulous job over the past five years. Second thing we did was brought Deloitte in to help us um, kind of define the literacy landscape in Houston. Um, we brought 80 stakeholders together in different um, kind of managed uh, sessions. And out of those sessions, out of the reports that were read and the data that was consumed, we came up with a literacy uh, a document called Houston's Literacy Crisis, a, a Blueprint for Community Action. And so, so Julie has done a fabulous job of bringing community partners together that hadn't worked with each other before, raising awareness, using my mom during her lifetime. You know, she did things with J.J. Watt and Dwight Howard and other, other characters. Um, and so, so we've been very, very active in the community, trying to, to put books into the homes of kids that don't have books. You know, you, the statistics and the data that we all use for early matters are, are data that now in statistics that are used uniformly in talking about the crisis in Houston that, as relates to un, kids that are ending 
kindergarten ill-prepared to learn, kids that are graduating third grade without the reading level skills to, to, that ensure their success, kids that fail to graduate from high school, and the juvenile delinquent system that's loaded with kids that are low literate, and, and adults, too many adults in our community are low literate. So we have a real crisis, and, and I, I love the fact that, that you and your leadership here in this school district is putting a giant focus on it. There's so much we can do, so many good practices that could be replicated, and um, it's just a critical need in our community. It's a critical need nationally. Particularly with our growing, the, the fastest growing student population, which in many cases is non-English speaking, right. which makes the whole... More challenging, I'm yeah, sure. the whole literacy more challenging. I'm curious when, you're, when your mom... Because when you're the first lady, yeah. you kind of have to decide. Okay, what's my what's my thing, right? Right. What, yeah. Do you do you know that she have history with reading and literacy? Um, she, what it, was her? It's a great question because I was dyslectic as a kid, so I always presumed that my struggles as a reader um, might have been one of the things that was her impetus of getting involved. Um, I, I think she just had an awareness during her young adult lifetime, being a mom, but also being observant in the, in the positions that she, she held in, in dad's life, um, just observed that literacy is a critical foundational skill, that if you can't read, you can't, you can't advance as far as you, your, your God-given potential to advance. So, yeah, she's kind of blown off the fact that I was dyslectic and that she spent a lot of time with me as a kid as being a principal or a primary factor in it, uh, but it might have been a back, you know, kind of a secondary reason. I remember because back, I guess back when your dad was vice president and when he became president, two or three years earlier during the Reagan administration, there was a report that was released called "A Nation at Risk." Right, I, still at risk. And yeah, <laughs> in certain areas we are we are still at risk in a lot of areas. Right, but I'm, I'm I just wonder if that if that had anything to do with maybe a light bulb going yeah, off. Yeah, I might have. That's a great question, and I and I wish I knew the answer. But, yeah, but I mean, it was the, the issue of education and the failure of our public education system was clearly highlighted during the Reagan era. Yeah. And, and I think Dad um, ran with the hopes of transforming education. I think every president desires to have some role in impacting right. education. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that. And, and the reality is that government – especially the federal government, can't solve all of our problems, especially education-related issues. Those are more local issues, and local leadership is really critical in determining, you know, the success of, of schools and kids in those schools mm-hmm. and the teachers they're teaching. So um, so there's a limited I- impact. And, and, there, and, and I would kind of argue that what Dad saw in the world, he, he talked eloquently about you know, the, the thousands of organizations that are doing great work all over in communities all over America. Uh, for every problem in America, there's a, a solution playing out somewhere. Yeah. And it usually involves a nonprofit organization, oftentimes powered by volunteers. And so, so there are best practices in education that, that can be applied from St. Louis or, you know, Brooklyn or whatever in Houston mm-hmm. and vice versa. Here at A-Leaf, could, you know, the great things you're doing here can be transferred elsewhere. And there just needs to be more of that, more volunteers, more sharing of best practices and more recognition that every problem can be solved. With the with the Barbara Bush Foundation, what yeah. are some of the things that that most members of the community may not even know is, is going on. So I'll, so there are a couple of initiatives that are really exciting. So, so Dr. Julie Baker Fink and the whole Early Matters Coalition, all of us know that there is both a word gap and a book gap. Yep. So the kids born in poverty are very unlikely to have a single book in their home for, for reading. So 
so picking that one issue as an issue where we can coalesce, um, you know, like-minded uh, stakeholders. Uh, Julie has started thing, a thing called My Home Library. So for 30 bucks, an individual donor or for $15,000, whatever, a corporation right. can sponsor a whole school where kids get to pick uh, at their choosing six books to take home. Um, and, and Julie's negotiated deals with, I don't know, six or seven or eight publishers who donate the books. So the kids get to scour through. And there's a lot of research that indicates that having books in homes is a key, is a key criteria or not It's a key predictor of, of yep. future success and being prepared and then ultimately being successful in school. So, and the fact that they get to choose books that they like. Sadly, when I was in school, I hated reading because I read stuff I didn't care about. Yep. And it was difficult for me to read, so it was a real struggle. Right. And so the bit, it just makes sense in studies show that if you – the low-hanging fruit or the path, the, the path of least resistance is read something you like. When I was reading Sports Illustrated as a kid, I didn't have that much trouble reading. But right. when I picked up the history book, you know, I was like, oh, my God, what does this mean? I got dyslexic real quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, well I, and, I, and I, I guess the— And by the way, that program that I just mentioned, Read, Houston, Read, mm-hmm. uh, or My Home Library, has, has already um, been successful where 25,000 kids in Houston, in the Houston area, yeah. now have their own first home library. Which is great. That that and I was what I was going to add is that you're right. Sometimes we make while literacy is critical and, we, and it's a complex issue in trying to right. teach a little boy, little girl to to read, particularly if they don't speak the English language. Some of the easiest solutions out there is just putting a book in front of the child, and and and, and or putting it in the home so the mom or the dad can actually right. be a part of the the reading. Right. And if you don't have that. Then yeah. it's it's difficult for schools to make up for that gap, right? And I think that's where your mom and the foundation is. I, I'm dying. This isn't really related to the Barbara Bush Houston Literacy Fund, mm-hmm. but ch- technology is changing everything we do mm-hmm. in our lives. It's changing adults and the way we communicate with our kids. It's changing the way we do business. It's changing everything. It's changing education in ways that are probably pretty profound. I, there must be ways that we can introduce technological solutions, and I know there are solutions out there playing out, but where they become ubiquitously used in you know preschools and, and daycare centers mm-hmm. you know, to help prepare kids to recognize letters and to understand the sounds and to be better prepared to be readers as they go into pre-K. And then from K through 3, I don't know, I just feel like there's, 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 we're missing the boat. There's so much improvement and transformational development taking place with technology, but it hasn't really struck. And I'm curious, what, is, what are you seeing in that, in that way, in that front? Well, from a, from a structured education perspective, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that we use, but you can do that in a school setting. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you can go right. out and find a product or a service. One of the founda- the Bush Foundation provided grant money for Rose, uh, um, Rosie Reddy. Rosie Reddy. Well, Reddy, Reddy. that's for, okay, yeah. That's but, for like home, for, isn't that for engaging parents yes, with their kids? Yes. Yeah. So, and and my, what I, my point on that is, is that things like that that's organized and kind of prepackaged, right. if you will, to right. address that issue is very effective. Right. And, and we find ourselves in the school setting, you know, uh, participating in, in utilizing technology. The problem is, is when you get outside the school setting where there's no teacher right. controlling the use of right. that technology, then the technology is going to be used for for other things, other right. things, enjoyment. Yeah. So until until not only the families and the parents, but until just kind of kind of as a society as a, and an expectation that no matter where you go, 
the use of technology to help with literacy is is kind of an expectation. Right. We're we're relying on our schools to do that. Right. And and I so I see it as a I see it the same way you see it. It's just the only way it's effective that I have noticed is in a structured environment like yeah. a school setting. I agree. No, I totally agree. But that, so it'd be a powerful tool in it a would. structured environment. It would. It, it would. The the right tool in the hands of teachers and the students right. would be a very powerful. So yeah. You, you mentioned the word gap. Mm-hmm. And this is something that most people don't realize, and it's so simple. Yeah, we just talk to your child. Right, I know. It's like, and I, I was a dad. I had, I raised, raised three kids, and then married a woman who had three kids. So I've raised six kids, essentially. Yeah. And just talking to your kids is, is just a simple thing. And and I don't know, learning is a simple, painless exercise of a brain ex- exercising curiosity. Mm-hmm. And if you, as a parent, can talk to your kids and and help that child exercise that muscle the, through, you know, in, enticing their curiosity and pointing out things and talking about things and the colors and the mm-hmm. things and the animals and all the things that you see in your everyday world. Um, it's just a, it's a simple remedy, yeah. and too few people really t- take it too seriously. And that's it's it's I don't know how we get parents to recognize that that's a critical a critical need. Yeah, I, it's it's. I think we talked about this at Early Matters one time, I, right. and I forget who brought it up. But things like when you take your child to the grocery store, mm-hmm. and you walk up and down the aisle, oh, yeah, it's a treasure trove it, of opportunity. It, that's exactly. You could talk yeah. about anything and anything. Yeah, the yellow ch- banana, that's the exa- shapes. You know, you yeah, got every everything. Exactly. The numbers. You, you could spend three hours on the candy aisle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just going without yeah. buying all the candy. No, you're right. <laughs> but I just lo- I, I love watching a little child's face light up when they c- come to a conclusion. About about mm-hmm. something, when their curiosity, and the thing about learning is in your mind, you hear a word and you're trying to process what that word means and you're looking at all the environmental um, stuff around you to figure it out. Right. And you're going to be wrong probably the first five or six times. Yep. But finally, when the guy says red apple and you see the apple, you know, the, the little kid will utter or have in, locked in his brain, red is that color and an apple looks like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. So the more you expose kids to words and conversation and, the, you know, exercise that, that muscle, the better prepared they're going to be in life. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm worried because oftentimes, and I, don't, I may not be accurate, but kids that are raised in, in homes that are low economic homes, kids are raised in poverty, oftentimes the parents really don't have a vocabulary that they can extra, that they can use with their kids that could be a problem they clearly don't recognize the important need of c- communication and so i mean we, as as important as it is to educate the parent i i'm i'm really hopeful that we can raise an army of volunteers to somehow intervene in the lives of all these kids yeah. wherever they may be during right. the day at a daycare center or in a you know public school or whatever their setting is, if you can intervene and have a loving um, touch of an adult that cares who can speak with the kids and you know mentor the kids and help those kids develop their learning skills, so that's that's one of the things we've done at the Barbara Houston Literacy Foundation. We started a a a, a website, a, a volunteer platform called ConnectForLiteracy.com, and it's the number four, connect the number four literacy.com or dot org, I'm sorry, dot org. There are hundreds of volunteer opportunities posted there. We have I think eight thousand volunteers have signed up since that program, since that website is has gone live. And so the more people we can get to go into the schools or volunteer remotely or to go to work in adult learning centers, mm-hmm. you know, the the more we can get people involved 
the better this community is going to be in terms of our literacy rates. I agree. And I'm going to segue a little bit and talk about uh, your dad when he, when he identified the points of light, right. of which you're the chairman of that. The thing I, t- the thing I take away from, from those types of analogies, if you will, or those types of, of, you know, the term is just trying to give you a visualization, right? Right. This is what I'm trying to say. And right. I, I once heard, and I don't know who said it, but I once heard that America is, is made up of thousands and thousands of small communities. Right. I mean, that's what makes America go is when mm-hmm. the, all these thousands of communities kind of take care of themselves. They take right. care of their own. Right. Right. And I think under the under the points of light and literacy, I mean, literacy would probably be one of the brightest shining of the of the points <laughs> so, of light. Yeah. It, but but talk a little bit about your dad's vision. And, and, and so I've realized something. So we so last year, as you know, has been a, a, a year of transition <laughs> for us. My mom died. My dad died. Um, but during that four or five days of celebration of Dad's life, it was interesting to me that the focus of the stories, and there were amazing stories, and imagine being part of a family where your father's life is like, you know, celebrated so beautifully. It was, a, yeah. it was a, such a rewarding and um, incredible, like everything was perfect. It was, it was a proud moment for our country. Proud moment for the country and, and for, for our family. family. It was Absolutely. like, you know, from our brother George and Jeb and all my siblings and the, the nieces and nephews and everybody to be, to be together the whole time and to be able to see this is just remarkable. But I realized something that in those stories, people didn't really focus on dad's biography. When, when, when dad ran for president the first time, nobody knew him, but he, so I went out on the campaign trail and talked about, he was a war hero, a businessman, a congressman, a UN ambassador, CIA, you know, representative China, all those kinds of things. You didn't hear that really much. Um, You didn't really hear much about the historical moments under his leadership. The Berlin Wall came down, the the Cold War ended, unification of Germany, the liberation of Kuwait. I mean, there were some monstrous things that took place. What the, the stories really focus on the character of the man, of, of and, and the, the notes he wrote, the interventions he had, the kindness that, that you know, was really part of his heart. And, and, I, and I analyzed it in my own mind to, to say that everything he did during his, his life was meant to lift others. And, and out of that inspiration came his, his calling on all Americans to realize a successful life defined by serving others. He, he said any definition, definition of a successful life must include service, service. others. Everybody can do it. And, and what I've learned from my mom and dad is you don't have to be president. You don't have to be governor. You don't have to be first lady to make a difference. Everybody can make a difference. And, and, and when dad uttered the words points of light, by the way, there were 34 million Americans volunteering every year. Today, there are um, 52 or 60, see, 52 or 62, but a lot more, yeah. 52 million, let's say. There's a lot more that can be volunteering. We have a population that's much larger than that. Um, and so there's a national service movement that's been growing over the last 30 years that needs to continue. And corporations are playing a big role. Faith organizations play a big role. The youth are getting some elements mm-hmm. of youth are getting more active in service. So, so Dad's inspiration um, is one that really does... Uh, inspire us to exercise our fullest democratic rights. You know, we see a problem in front of us. Roll up your sleeves and go do something about it. Watching it on TV, just watching the the commentary from all political 
spectrum. Right. There, there was no, yeah. you know, he, he was president during a time in which, yeah, there were, there were some partisanship, but it, nothing like it is right now, obviously. <laughs> he dealt with it differently. There were some d- big, yeah. deep d- partisan divides. In fact, he, was, he had a Democrat-controlled Congress, House and Senate during his four years as president. And still got things done. And he still got things done. Yeah. yeah. Well, he got things, anyway, we don't need a rehash because <laughs> it will never happen again. But, you know, he, he made the pledge, no new taxes read my lips. And it's probably the biggest political mistake of his life to be so boisterous in making that pr- proclamation. When he got into the White House, his economic advisor said, Mr. President, we're going to have a $200 billion or $300 billion deficit. Um, and, and he said, we can't tolerate deficits in this mm-hmm. country. So I'm going to – and he negotiated with Congress, raised taxes, mm-hmm. broke his pledge. They cut spending. And they had a balanced budget for like the years bleeding into the Clinton years. Um, you know, that kind of collaboration sadly doesn't exist today. And we have a g- government shutdown. I don't know when this is going to play. Hopefully the government will be back <laughs> up and running. But it's just crazy that people just, you know, draw the lines. There's so much partisanship and there needs to be much more collaboration. We've gone away from the center and there's too many, too much left, too much right. I agree. I, I, I wish every weekend the, the national media would just show highlights and excerpts of your mom's funeral process, <laughs> that transition, and your dad's, yeah. because the commentary yeah. and the discussion was actually meaningful yeah. about that. that yeah. mm-hmm. And kind of tying this back to your mom's uh, involvement right. in literacy, did your dad have any involvement, any input huh. into what she wanted to spend her time as First Lady and how she I got involved in I don't think anybody really told mom what, what to, to do. do. <laughs> That's probably a dumb question yeah, on no, my part. No, no. <laughs> she, was a, she was a strong-willed and determined lady. My mom was very special. I mean— she had the the sharpest um, wit. I don't know, HD, if you've had parents that have aged or grandparents or whatever. But as people get old, I've observed their filters go down, and so their true nature comes out. And my mom was to the very end sharp as a tack, but but feisty and a little biting with yeah. some of her humor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and dad, you know, was just the kindest, the nicest, always lifting, you know, deflecting attention from himself. You know, so you could see that the, the true nature comes out. But mom was determined. She was she was very loyal, loyal to her family, loyal to you know, her, her husband, but also loyal to this cause of literacy. And she went all over the country, raised money for all kinds of organizations, gave out, I don't know, $60 million to organizations during her, her lifetime through the National Foundation. So, yeah, she was she was very committed. I don't, I'm not sure. I think Dad's impact may, at least from our perspective here in Houston, is the, the combining of the, of the volunteer right. concept of right. needing to build capacity for services through volunteerism and helping to train organizations to use volunteers effectively um, in the literacy movement. That's kind of the blending of these two, two legacies. You, you spend a lot of time in China. I do. On, on your professional side. I do. It's another passion of mine. Well, it was business and 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 um, philanthropically too. By the way, I started the the George Bush, the George H. W. Bush, China U.S. Relations Foundation on the heels of my father right. having hosted five conferences, bringing leaders together, and so we're continuing that that mission. Dad Dad has believed that the U.S. China relationship is by far the most important bilateral relationship in the world. Jimmy Carter and others echo that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in today's hysterical environment where everybody's seeing some evil in China's rise, not everybody, but many people are, politicians are, and they're trying to portray China in a way that p- poten- that demonizes it and could potentially turn China from a friend, you know, into an, an unnecessary competitive, you know, foe. Mm-hmm. 
China has no history of military aggression when it's been a dominant power in the world. And they're, they're the, you know, I mean, I've been over to China over 100 times. They're the nicest people in the world. And, and they said, we, we, they've got, we've got bilateral challenges or issues, sure. intellectual property theft. Right. You know, there may be like the level playing field in terms of investment mm-hmm. here and there and that kind of thing. But you can deal with those respectfully. If, you know, in the George H.W. Bush model, you work things out, you know, with, with, with serious trusting and, 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 you know, uh, respectful dialogue, not this name-calling and right. what we're seeing today. It's just creating a hysterical environment, which is really bad for our country. How, how do you see the, the education that, that you're exposed to over there? Interesting question. So the very first exposure I had uh, was in 1975 during the Cultural Revolution. So Dad was the became known as the bicycling ambassador back in those days. There was no freedom. They were all people were raised in communes, and it was a it was a it was a very interesting time. Everybody was equal. They were equally poor. You know, they like <laughs> yeah. had two uniforms. Right. So we went to a communal school. And when you go into the school back in 1975, the kids were asked a question and all of them would, you know, sit up straight in their thing and put their arms straight up. And then when they call on the teacher would call on one of the students, they'd stand up and kind of like robots, you know, reciting whatever it is they were supposed to memorize that day. Went into an art class and they had a picture of a duck or something on the Mm -hmm. wall. And everybody's being graded for how closely they can mimic the picture Mm -hmm. on the wall. So there was no individual, like, you know, individuality. Right. It was right. all kind of – and so they've, they've migrated from that system, which is kind of at the core of their system, you know, drill and kill and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And we've suffered from that for many, many years here in the U.S., truthfully, yep. and it's, we're migrating away from it now, mm-hmm. thankfully. And the <laughs> Chinese are desperate to try to find ways to liberate their system, to bring – the best practices from the U.S. So their collaborations are establishing with international school systems. Um, and in the meantime, I think there may be 400,000 Chinese students that are attending higher level education in, in the, the U.S. US. You know, this is this is this yeah. and England and other parts of the world are meccas to them for education. And they they love sending their kids here. Oh, yeah. We, we opened an international school for our students in which we're partnering with some some educators and edu- and schools in Shanghai. Right. Uh, I'm always I'm always entertained by this notion by those who say you, you know the American education system st- needs to be more like China or more like the Pacific. Yeah, <laughs> I, d- I totally reject that. Thank you. The, yeah. No, well, the only the only I, I'm curious though to get your impression because mm-hmm. I think one of the things they do well at an early age is the you know is the language development skills. Imagine being a little kid trying to learn Chinese. Characters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't just do that in an American school system right. where you know it's just you know hope they learn it. You gotta mm-hmm. you gotta practice. Mm-hmm. And there's some there's a there's and I, and I think it's true in in American English language development. There's got to be a little bit of re- practice rehearsal. You know the ABC song and yeah. different things yep. and numeracy. The same thing. They do really good in math. Because the kids grow up knowing the multiplication tables, you know, from an early age. I think there's some benefit to that. But when you get past fourth grade or third grade or whatever, you start thinking independently. Yeah, the Chinese system, which is which is a much more severe version of ours, yep. is not working. It, fail, it, it fails. I, yeah. I, I was in Singapore a couple of years ago, and I told this story. I'm sitting there with yeah. the prime minister of, of Singapore and then the education minister. Hmm. And one of them, he leans over and he says, uh, he called me Mr. Superintendent. He goes, Mr. Yeah. Superintendent, why, why are you here? 
And I was there as part of a delegation to just kind of look at their system. Right. And I said, well, I'm here to kind of, and he kind of interrupted me. He says, I know why you're here. <laughs> he says, do you realize why you were flying across the Pacific Ocean to see us? We had three planes coming to the United States to see how you guys are. Yeah. <laughs> and, he made a, and he made a comment that I've, right. I've said, I've repeated a, a several times. He said, uh, over the last several years on the Program of International Studies Assessment, the PISA exam, mm-hmm. which measures our international how we compare to other international countries in math right. and science. The United States has always done very poorly mm-hmm. since the inception back in the 1960s. And he said, uh, I would trade my number one ranking in math and science PISA with your creativity and innovation. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great statement, a great trade-off. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and that's kind of stuck with me. He right. said, I would trade it every day. I'd rather be dead last yeah. on a test score and be first in innovation. Because our our systems, and he kept comparing China and other Pacific Rim countries, says our systems are just, we will never have a Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. We will never have a Bill Gates. We right. will never have a, uh, an entrepreneur who right. thinks like that and is able to create right. an impact. The There's got to be a blend. Absolutely. You know, it, I went to a school, interestingly, in Dalian, China, coastal city up in the north, um, probably a tiny little city of 10 million people or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a guy there that bought s- s- schools that I'm kind of associated with. Um, he runs the Beijing Royal School, but now he's got this school system up in Dalian. I went to one of the schools, and I was amazed. They, they, they teach in bilingual, English and Chinese. Uh, they have art classes, and they gave us a presentation. And the theme of the presentation was the UN... Um, uh, sustainable challenge, you know, the, the, I can't remember, there are like 30 or something UN th- goals. And, th- and so they picked a few of those. And these students gave a presentation in English with slides talking about, you know, the environmental concerns they had or whatever the p- particular issue was. And they were so articulate. These were high school kids. So, right. so you, 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 it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise you, I guess. But, but they developed skills. And then going through the classrooms, they were much more interactive than I would have thought being in China. I mean, there, there's innovation. I guess my point is there's innovation taking place in all the corners of the world. You might find something in Dubai, for example. I have no idea mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's, I, I, I think this change that needs to take place so that 21st century skills are developed where kids learn to think for themselves. They learn how to use Google to find the answer mm-hmm. to questions, where they learn to interact with other people, where they learn to communicate in a way that gets their point across, where they learn to be effective I don't know, salespeople or whatever. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? I mean, that, those, the, the schools need to be redesigned. Colleges need to be redesigned to, to accept students that, you know, they're, the whole system of measurement, assessment, and what we want the kid to be like when he graduates, either from high school ready for work or right. college ready for work. Right. You know? and, oh, I'm, I'm with you. We could spend yeah. another two hours on what my concerns are. And a lot of it starts with the topic we started this whole mm-hmm. conversation with, going back to literacy. If we can ensure that a little boy, little girl is confident enough in their ability to, to communicate, right. then all these other things right. that, that we're talking about are much more achievable. Right. Totally so, agree. For all of them. Totally agree. Where the system in my opinion, where the education system begins to falter, we continue hampering in many cases the the creativity and innovation because we're not doing well on some test. Mm-hmm. And that's and sad to me. It is, well, and, I, it, and it should be. And it's 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 not only is it sad to me, it's frustrating right. because in my role, my job right. is is to help provide a opportunity for these little boys, little girls to become young men, young women, right. and the literacy notwithstanding which is the number one factor. Right. That should be measured. That should be measured. But everything else, there, it's, it's yeah. hard to measure 
the measures I don't know, the measures need to be rethought and and uh, re implemented so that we develop incentives to develop kids that are going to be employable and live happy and joyful lives into the future. I went to a school, so I started an education company. I don't know if you know this in 2000 um, because I recognized from my own son's learning environment. He went to he went to a private school in Houston, great school. But it was a sitting class and you know lecture and yeah. textbook type thing, and mm-hmm. he didn't really do well in that environment. And, the, and by the way, the teacher and, and the principal of the middle school said he's got to be put on Ritalin and blah blah blah. And I, I so he rejected the idea of taking Ritalin. Um, so I studied the idea, I studied this whole. We took him to the Howard School in Atlanta, mm-hmm. did an assessment, and and they said, you know what, your son's really smart, but he learns in different ways, and yep. you know, so they gave us some clues. But I started this company because the classroom environments are so back then more than now, but so boring and so monotonous, and the textbooks really don't, re, you know, kids can't relate to textbooks, and that kind of. So so we developed curriculum to help teachers connect with kids that are having to teach this this wide body of stuff they're being held accountable for on all these tests in social science social studies and math and etc. So as part of my work I went to a school in Newark, New Jersey, which was interesting because this school had been a failing school but now is back on track. Um, the 8th grade was studying the entire curriculum under the umbrella of juvenile delinquency. The theme of the year was juvenile delinquency. And so in the English class, they had kids writing, you know, letters or, you know, reports based on, you know, if they were uh, the, the victims of crime, what they what they would write to the, the guy, the criminal that did it or whatever. And in math, they studied the statistics around it. So when I went to the class and talked to these kids, they were so articulate mm-hmm. in talking about this subject matter. It was something they were intrinsically motivated to learn. It wasn't sitting in a classroom. They were they were allowed to kind of you know move around and right. be kids. I don't. I just feel like if Harvard is smart enough to use the case study method in their business school, you know why can't we somehow design a system that measures results that show growth of human possibility right that's exactly and and that's, do it in some to kind of introduce things that are more relevant to kids that's that's how this country was founded and that's how we've continued to succeed for the last 200 and some odd years mm-hmm. is the growth of possibility the the dream i can the dream but the school system's always been kind of a you know the what's the, the old uh, german system from that that's like 15 or 1600s anyway it's been an old Rigid system is finally is finally getting better and Neil, better. But Neil, we still uh, I don't want to give a history lesson here, but if you, if you go back and read the Jeffersonian papers, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about the first education system of the United States, they used they used two terms. They used thinkers and doers. Huh. The system was designed at that time to teach math, to teach you know the three R's, right. and the church and the family was supposed to teach everything else. Mm-hmm. And either you did well, and if you did well, you were going to be a thinker, which means you were going to be able to go on to college. Right. If you didn't, you were going to be a doer, and you were going to go work. Okay. Our system hasn't changed much since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, standardized testing is a rank order system. That's right. what it's intended to do. Right. Now, they, those who propose, who are proponents of it will argue that the very definition of standardizing a curriculum and standardizing an assessment does just that. Mm-hmm. So my, my the credit I give public ed across this country is immense because in many cases we're doing great things in spite right. of what's expected. Right. And and I think that's what the gentleman, the prime minister from Singapore was telling us. He goes, why, right. are you, why are you over here looking at us? Yeah. I do not know. <laughs> right. 
Well, and, I, and I'm critical of the system because I do think it needs to be more engaging to kids. It needs to be more – having said that, if you look at – and um, Kleinberg does mm-hmm. studies blah, blah, show, showing how – you know, immigrants come to, to Houston and settle in. And over generations, these immigrants become part of the middle class and their the education levels go up higher. So the system is clearly working mm-hmm. at, you know, bringing students in and lifting families up. So, so I'm, I, I don't, I don't want to have my critique be, you know, exaggerating the fact that there are really good results, but they can be better. And, yeah. this, and we need to change the system because the world's changing so fast. Yeah, the, re- the results sometimes are not meeting the needs of Right of the of the world or the, That's the economy. My problem. Yeah, and I had I had I had Steve Kleinberg. Matter of yeah. fact, he was our first guest. Really, our very He's first. Amazing. Oh Whatever my God, guy. he is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, but yeah, it's the this notion of of the. I think I think public schools, and he 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 kind of commented on this. Public schools when we, when we are at our best, we are assimilating people into our country. I mean that. It's, a, it's been amazing. It is that that and that's that's yeah. a, that's a fear I have with the the. Kind of the the, the destruction, and that's a, mm-hmm. that's a strong word. I don't mean right. the destruction, but the destruction of the community school, the elementary school, uh, because that's where you assimilate. Right. And going back to the points of light and going back to all these little mm-hmm. small communities that make up our country, the more you destroy, the more you chip away at that community school, the mm-hmm. more you chip away at being able to assimilate people into our society. Right. Yeah. And, and when we're at our best, we're doing that. Right. Um, I want to wrap up. I think we're... I got to sit here and talk about this stuff all day long. Me too. But, <laughs> but I, I do want to circle back. The reason I wanted to have a conversation with you was for the very things we've talked about. First, your perspectives in your family, your mom and your dad, obviously your brother serving who, who uh, you know, George W. with uh, No Child Left Behind. I was a part of the administration, uh, public school administration whenever he was governor, and we were just starting to become more aligned in creating assessments. Mm-hmm. I think the assessments went too far, but right. I totally understand. Yeah, if schools are failing, it's probably good to know that. You need to know that. Right. And, 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 and the thing that he did, right. which I think has been a game changer for everyone, was we started breaking down the data by, by subpopulations. Right. So you couldn't ignore... Right, African American, Hispanic, right. you couldn't ignore them, right. and uh, for that, he deserves tremendous credit. Uh, but as I as I have evolved in my profession and throughout his presidency and in where we are right now, I see a shift. I mean, I I, mm-hmm. I, I, I see a shift. You're in a building right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing that that kids are engaged, right. teachers right. are engaged, right, uh, and they're learning real things. They can be applied in life. It's That's just, right. Yeah, this is this is so impressive. I love the fact that this school district has picked a single spot where schools in the district can bring their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it makes it just makes economic sense, and it's great for the development of these these kids, for sure. Yeah, we I, I have high expectations over the next right five ten years about what's gonna what we're gonna be able to do to help this community, and hopefully take some students and just change the trajectory of their life. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Congratulations. Well, a lot of people, taxpayers of this district, right. deserve <laughs> a lot of credit. No, for sure. They, they're paying for it. Right. Your your role with Points of Light, your role with your mom's foundation. What are what are things you that you either want to reiterate or you want to make sure the people that listen to this know about? Yeah. First of all, I just feel very blessed in my life that I do business and I love my business, traveling overseas and having relationships. But I get to spend a lot of time, you know, pursuing. Bush family legacy interests, including points of light. I'm also on the Bush School Advisory Board, so there's a Bush School for Government and Public Service up in College Station, um, and and so I, I I guess I don't know. Just I would I would call on whoever's listening to find a way to help others. 
and to serve. And if if you're already serving as a teacher or an administrator, you know you you have our our deepest praise for that commitment. Um, but if you're if you're retired or if you're young, if you're it doesn't matter what your economic status is, it doesn't matter what your racial thing. Just go and try to help lift another person, help a teacher in a classroom if the teacher's welcoming volunteers into the classroom. You know, help find, just find a way to pitch in and help out. And and, and to my personal belief, because I believe as mom did, that if you can find ways to help with literacy in this community, if we can make Houston a model. And by the way, um, H.C., this is a little off the topic of what you just asked, but I believe that that, that moonshot-type change will take place when you hyper-focus on neighborhoods. So if you have a really poor neighborhood that's poor-performing elementary schools that feed into a failing high school or middle school and high school system, work on that neighborhood to try to lift up and bring all the the interventions in and see what you can do there. But So so I I would encourage people to volunteer, uh, try to be strategic about how you volunteer. My my son runs Big Brothers Big Mm -hmm. Sisters. If you can be a mentor to a kid, not necessarily through that program, but in a reading environment yeah. or through tutoring or whatever, that's a that that has a huge impact on the trajectory, as you just said, of that kid's life. So uh, try to try to pitch in. My dad again said, uh, any definition of a successful life must include service others. Try to try to serve others. And that we will end. Thank you, Neil, for being with Thank us. You, and and pl- and please bring back to your family. Uh, not only Ailey Fiesti's appreciation and our school board, but just as, as citizens of this great city that uh, that we appreciate everything that, that they have done and that you guys are continuing to do. Thank you, H.D. Thanks for your leadership, it, too. It is appreciated. So this has uh, been Impact Ed with uh, Mr. Neil Bush. Uh, I would like to invite everyone to listen to our next episode, which will in, uh, involve uh, the principal of Crossroads, Mr. Tremaine Wycliffe. And Crossroads is a campus that deals with some children and some students who have run into tough times. It's a special campus, and I think you will enjoy listening to Tremaine and his story and what he does for that for that student population. For that, I'm H.D. Chambers. This has been Impact Ed. Thank you for joining us.